Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. Join us as we continue our study through the book of Acts, Luke's account of how the Holy Spirit breathed life into and empowered the early church to fulfill the Great Commission after Jesus' passion. All right, well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan Mazant. I serve with our student ministry, and I'm excited to share with you as we continue on through the book of Acts. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, so you can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. Well, one of the things I think about sometimes is how uh, future generations are going to look back on the present day. Like, what are uh, the patterns that they are going to be able to see that are difficult for us to recognize up close? And something that I think will be uh, clear in the future is that we are currently living in a renaissance, uh, a revival, if you will. And most of us don't even realize it, uh, but we are witnessing a comeback of cookbooks, Uh, Now, if you don't know, cookbook sales have increased over the 2010s year over year by about 10% each year. Uh, By the time you get to 2020, you're looking at 21.5 million cookbooks sold. And then in 2021, there was a 42% increase on top of that. Now, obviously, some of that has to do with COVID and more people cooking from home. Uh, But I think another driving factor has to do with the internet. Uh, You see, you would think with Pinterest and recipe blogs uh, that you would need a cookbook, but you would be wrong uh, because we just reached the saturation point where there's 500,000 carbonara recipes and it's just become overwhelming to try to sort through all of it and find something worth making. Uh, But with modern cookbooks, Uh, They have simple recipes, perfectly arranged pictures with the light open kitchen and the subway tile that every millennial dreams of. And you don't have to scroll through like an entire backstory just to get to the instructions. Now, we have a few cookbooks at home that we really enjoy. Uh, The Define Dish. Any Define Dish fans out there? Uh, There's a recent follow-up, The Comfortable Kitchen, which is also awesome. Uh, Full disclosure, I'm not sponsored. I'm just passionate. (laughs) But the other day, I was scrolling through, or I was flipping through these, and I was struck by inspiration. Uh, You see, I think with what we've seen in the cookbook market, I think there is another type of book that is just primed for a comeback, and that is hymnals. Now, some of you have never seen one before, but I think it'd be really simple. You just get some old hymns, you throw in some Maverick City, you slap on some trendy photos, and you have a winner. And it's so brilliant. I was sure that someone had already done this. So I got on Amazon, and I searched, and the first result was the modern hymnal. And my heart sunk. But then I saw that it was published in 1926. So the market is wide open. But circling back uh, to cookbooks, um, the reason that I like them is that I'm not a great cook. Uh, I get what's called kitchen anxiety. 
And I'm just constantly afraid that I'm gonna uh, get something wrong and I'm going to just ruin the entire thing. And so what I need is a formula. Uh, Get these ingredients, follow these steps, and you're good. And when it comes to our topic today, uh, evangelism, I can't help but think that something similar is going on. For most of us, maybe all of us, uh, evangelism, sharing our faith, is outside of our comfort zone. Maybe we even feel this pressure or this anxiety that we're going to say something wrong and we're going to mess it up entirely. And so perhaps what we desire is a formula. Maybe it could look something uh, like this. Just give me the right things to say and give me the right answers to give so that uh, someone can be convinced that the gospel is true. And today, as we unpack Acts 17, as we join Paul on his second missionary journey, uh, we may be tempted to try to find a formula like this. But my hope is that as we look at Paul sharing the gospel in three different cities, that instead of chasing a formula, we could learn to pursue a posture and to depend on a tool that can transform lives. That's where we're heading this morning. So let's read, starting in Acts 17, verse one. It says this, after they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. Now, when I first read this passage, a few words stuck out to me. Uh, It says in the synagogue that Paul reasoned with them and that he explained and he proved and some of them were persuaded. And I hear that and it sounds uh, very scholarly and logical. Like I picture Paul with a whiteboard and he's like diagramming sentences and writing out proof equations in this three-part lecture series. And we do know that Paul was a scholar In fact, with his background as a Pharisee, he was perhaps one of the brightest minds in the early church, if not the history of the church. And yet, when Paul introduces himself in his letters, the title that he uses has nothing to do with his training or his academic merit. No, rather he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And I think we get a hint of that here, as we look more closely at the words, uh, where it says that Paul explained and proved. Uh, that word for proved is one we see throughout the New Testament. It has a range of meanings, uh, but its essential definition is to place before, to set before. It's the same word used of a servant who sets a meal before a guest. So Paul is placing before them or serving to them this evidence from Scripture 
that Jesus is the Messiah. And I want to flip over uh, to the right to 1 Thessalonians for a moment because Paul's own writing to this same group of people where he describes these events that are happening in Acts, uh, they show even more clearly what I'm getting at. So flip over 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2. This is what he says, chapter 2, starting in verse 2. We were, he's describing uh, their experience in Thessalonica. So he says, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation or our teaching didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead, we were gentle among you. As a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you'd become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verse 13, this is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. So as Paul here describes his time, his role in Thessalonica, uh, what truly stands out is this heart of servanthood. And this brings us to our first point that I want you to write down. The gospel is a dish best served. The gospel is a dish best served. In other words, we are called to share the gospel with the posture of servants. And from this passage in 1 Thessalonians, we actually see what this posture looks like. Uh, Verse 2, a servant is strengthened or emboldened by God's power rather than confidence in their own ability. Verse 4, a servant seeks God's approval rather than the approval or the applause of people who like what they have to say. A servant uh, serves gently and sacrificially and devotedly, they give themselves humbly rather than simply giving their ideas. And I think to sum it up, having the posture of a servant, I would say is even more important than even saying all the right things. So where do we start? How do we develop this uh, posture of servanthood. I think the first thing that we need to make a habit of is considering how Jesus served. 
I'm not saying to just occasionally think about this, but actually set aside time this week and meditate on what Jesus says in Mark 10, which says the son of man, talking about himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Take time during your quiet time this week. Just close your eyes. Imagine yourself in the room as Jesus is coming around and he's washing his disciples' grimy feet. Let that picture sink in and pray, God, would you give me this same spirit of servitude? Second thing, just on a practical level, is that we want to be servants Uh, we have to have margin in our life. Servants require margin. Uh, Remember in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, we worked night and day so that we could share with you and not be a burden. Uh, And I just think about our lives and our schedules, our calendars, and they're so packed that if we were to try to fit in serving someone, um, it would just be such a burden to try to jam it all in with everything else we're already doing. We need margin if we're going to be servants. And I just, I have to wonder if perhaps um, by taking a few things off of our plates or maybe committing to less in 2022, could we actually accomplish more as servants who are available to be used at any moment. We need margin. As we keep reading in chapter 17, um, it's their servanthood, the servant posture that catches the attention of their opponents. Uh, We read that the Jewish leaders, they start a riot in the city. And listen to what they say, their accusation in verse six. They say, these men, talking about Paul and his companions, these men have turned the world upside down and they've come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, and this is key, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You see, that's their posture. They recognize that they were servants and the real threat was not their ideas. I mean, we're not afraid of experts. Because you just, you have to deal with their ideas. But with a servant, you have to deal with their king. And that is a threat. So because of this riot, uh, Paul and his companions are forced to leave town. Uh, But fortunately, we know that the damage is already done. And we read in 1 Thessalonians how the faith of the church there rings out and echoes throughout the entire region. Now, Paul, as he keeps journeying, we're going to pick up the story Acts 17, verse 10, says this. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. So here at our second stop, uh, Paul and Silas follow the same pattern that we saw in Thessalonica. They open up scripture and they show how it reveals Christ as Messiah. 
Uh, but here we see a different reaction. And though the message was the same, uh, Luke tells us that it's the character and the response of the Bereans that makes a difference. Uh, first, it says uh, that they received the word with eagerness, uh, which basically means they had willing hearts. And then it says they responded uh, by daily examining scripture to verify that what Paul was saying was true. Uh, they didn't just take his word for it. And the reason they were able to verify in scripture is because Paul's message was rooted in scripture. And consequently, verse 12 reads, or as a result of these things, many of them believed. We can compare that back to verse four, where it says that some in Thessalonica were persuaded. And this is where I want to hone in because the Bereans highlight a pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Maybe you've noticed it, uh, but no matter who's speaking and whether the audience is uh, Jewish or mixed, uh, whenever the gospel is preached, the primary tool that's used is God's word. Whenever the gospel is preached, the primary tool is God's word. You can go back and look at Peter's message at Pentecost in Acts 2, uh, or uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. You can look at Paul in Acts 13, and each time you'll see that their messages are built around Old Testament passages. And that brings us to our second point. God's word is our greatest evangelistic tool. God's word is our greatest evangelistic tool. Well, as I said, my uh, wife and I like to cook, and we have an entire drawer filled with kitchen gadgets. Uh, but my favorite one is this right here. Uh, this is just a simple uh, silicon tube, uh, but if you don't know what this is, it's genius. It peels garlic. Uh, back before I was enlightened, I would have to get the clove, like cut off one of the nubs and kind of crush it and then peel it with my fingers and I would smell like garlic for the next year and a half. Uh, but no longer. With this, you just put a garlic clove in, you roll it, and then it comes out perfectly peeled. Anybody not aware of this? Is this anyone's first time hearing this? Yeah, a few of you. Don't be embarrassed. You learned something in the day. But you may be thinking um, what I thought when I first saw this, which is that is too simple. There's no way that it could actually work, but it does, and you're welcome. <laughs> and when it comes to using God's word in evangelism, I can't help but feel like we may have a similar thought. That just seems too simple. I don't think it would actually work. It also may surprise us because for some of us, rather than a tool in evangelism, we might see God's word as a barrier, something that we actually need to navigate around if we're going to share our faith in 2022. Or maybe others of us, uh, we just, we're afraid that if we get the Bible involved, that we're going to be asked questions that we don't have the answers to. And we just imagine someone asking us something and we don't know and suddenly it just ruins our entire witness. But when we look at what scripture has to say about itself, we come to see that God's word is capable in a way that we are not. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter three. It's gonna be here on the screen. 
Paul, writing to Timothy, his true son of the faith, he says this, you know that from infancy that you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So according to Paul, scripture is able, meaning God's word possesses a power to bring about something in our lives. And that something is wisdom for salvation. The reason that scripture is able is what he says in the next sentence, because it is inspired or breathed into by a God who not only spoke, but continually speaks. I love how A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, God did not write a book and send it by messenger to be read at a distance to unaided minds. He spoke a book and lives in his spoken word, constantly speaking his words and causing the power of them to persist across the years. God's word is able because it's inspired. And we see the same idea in Hebrews 4. And actually a little bit of the mechanism of of how this works. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews 4 verse 12. It's gonna be on the screen. For the word of God is living and effective sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, this is the reality that the Bereans experienced, that when we examine God's word, God's word examines us. When we open God's word, God's word opens us. It may seem simple, even though it's a little difficult to explain, but God's word has a way of peeling off the outside layers and showing us what's underneath. And over the last 2,000 years, we see time and time again how this has played out in real people's lives. Think about the stories of C.S. Lewis or Lee Strobel and countless others who have gone into God's word uh, with the goal of disproving it. But then in its pages, they've encountered the God who speaks in that voice that has power to change. And you know what? I think this is incredibly freeing for us because it turns out we don't have to have all the answers And we don't have to be afraid of what God's word has said. But as a servant, we can lead people to God's word and trust that he is capable. So where do we start? Well, first is to find someone who will read the Bible with you. And I think that sounds intimidating, but I think you'll find that it isn't as hard or as scary as you think it would be. Uh, I know people in this church who have done this in their offices. In fact, I meet at Craftsman on Thursday mornings, and there's a group of dudes a few tables over that work uh, at a large firm together, and they've just started this uh, reading the word uh, time together. And it's one guy and his buddies that he works with who aren't believers, 
Uh, I've known parents who have done this, inviting friends over, their kids for play dates. And as the kids play upstairs and pull everything out of the toy box, they're downstairs reading together, inviting someone to read scripture with you. And in that moment, uh, it's not about having all the answers. Rather, it's about asking some of the right leading questions. I I threw some on the screen here. Uh, As you read, you ask, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about us? And if this is true, how ought I to respond? These three questions, uh, you can really lead someone in scripture. Again, you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to have some questions. If you don't know where to start, uh, John is a great book. After all, uh, John tells us why he wrote in chapter 20. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So invite someone to read with you, ask questions. Don't worry about having all the answers. Uh, But you say, wait, Ryan, but what if I'm asked a question and I just, I have no idea. It's gonna be embarrassing. Uh, Okay, I've picked up this trick. Here's what you can do. If they ask you something and you don't know, here's what you say. You can write this down. I don't know. (laughs) It works. And here's the thing. Uh, If they're actually seeking an answer and not just trying to stump you, then they're gonna wanna know. And you can say, hey, I think that's a really good question. I don't know the answer. But if the Bible has uh, something that it says about this, could we look into it together? It's not about having all the answers. And it's not about uh, being an expert either. But there are some things, some resources that could be really helpful to know. Uh, One of those is just having a general familiarity with the big picture story of Scripture. How every part of it points to Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. And the timing works out really well because next weekend in this room, we have the story of scriptures, this uh, conference put on by DTS where they're gonna be walking through this very topic. How does all of God's word tell the one unified story of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? We'd love for you to come out to that. But if you aren't able to make it, there's other great resources. One of those is the Bible Project. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it. But they have a podcast on this topic. You can look up How to Read the Bible, Episode 3. And that's about an hour long. Just covers the big picture story of Scripture. But jumping back into Acts. So after sharing the gospel, uh, they're in Berea. We have the opponents from Thessalonica follow them to town. And they start stirring up trouble. So Paul is sent on ahead to a city called Athens. Let's pick up verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So as you may know, Athens is a Roman city with a strong uh, Greek history and culture, including all of its gods and goddesses. Uh, It's named after Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and it was home to uh, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And by Paul's day, it was still just this hub 
of philosophy and religious thought. In fact, verse 21 says that all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there, they spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And as Paul rolls to town, we read that he's distressed uh, because he sees that the city is filled with idols. And I think it's this experience in Athens, uh, along with the other Greek cities that he travels to, the Greek Roman cities, that gives some of the backdrop for the letter he, he writes later on to Rome, where he talks about idols. Uh, in the opening chapter, chapter one, uh, he writes how God has designed creation to reveal his character, to reveal a part of who he is so that uh, creation would look to him and worship him and glorify him. But the problem he gets to in verse 21, it says, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. What he's saying is looking back, uh, mankind has exchanged the worship of the creator for worshiping created things. And because of that, we now experience ruin and decay. And worship here is more than just singing songs or bowing down before a statue. It's giving yourself to something. That's what worship is. In the rest of the book in Romans, uh, and especially by the time you get to chapter 12, Paul lays out what the Christian life is, how it is experiencing transformation by faith as we uh, give ourselves in worship to the God who brings restoration out of our decay. And this is the last kind of section for today because as we look at Paul's message that he's going to give his evangelism in Athens as he's brought to speak at the Areopagus, it's this hill where they debate ideas, we're gonna see that his message is all about worship. So let's read, starting in verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through, observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, 
God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So for our final point this morning, I think Paul's message here is so important because it shows us the end goal of evangelism. Paul is standing before philosophers and debaters, but notice that he's not trying to convince them that his ideas are better. He's not trying to just win an argument with logic and convince them that he's right. His aim is to redirect their worship from dead idols that bring ruin to the living God who restores. That's the last point I want you to write down. The focus of evangelism is redirecting worship from ruin to restoration. The focus is redirecting worship from ruin to restoration. This is what our gospel sharing has to be aimed at. It's not just convincing someone that Jesus existed and he died and he rose to life. All those things are true, but it's more than that. It's, it's because these things are true, because these things happened, that I give myself to him. I give him my life and worship because he's worthy as my savior and as my king. And I've said it before, but I'll say it here again. Um, if you can talk someone into the gospel, then someone else can talk them out of it. But if the gospel, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, comes not only in word, but in the transformative power of God, that can't be refuted. So my challenge this week is that like Paul, we would become students of our culture. That means as you go about your life, uh, your office, your school, you are on the lookout for idols, asking what is worshipped here? What are people giving themselves to? What kind of ruin are they experiencing because of that? And how does God offer restoration? Asking those questions, being on the lookout will help you know where to start and kind of defi define the path as you read scripture together. The second thing uh, is even more challenging. But if we're going to call people to a life of sacrificial worship, giving themselves to God, then we're gonna have to model it. And maybe that starts by doing an inventory of your life, asking God, what am I worshiping? What created things am I giving myself to? And coming before the Lord and saying, God, I surrender this to you. You are worthy of all glory, all honor, all power, all praise, and everything that I have. See, when we do that and we walk in that, that's when people notice a change. That's when they see a difference. And it's not just that we're a little more joyful than the average person or a little less anxious, but we're undergoing a process 
of restoration that can't be explained. So to close out this morning, I want to invite you to wonder with me how are future generations of Christians going to look back on this time, on the 2020s? What if they could look back and they could see a pattern, a revival of evangelism as servant-hearted Christ followers depend on God's word and call people into a life of transformative worship. Church, I believe that that can happen. And I believe that it can start here. Let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for uh, the generations of Christians who've come before us, who have humbly and boldly gone out and have declared your word. God, would we, as we started, would we have a heart this week, this burning desire to share your word? God, would you remove the fears the barriers, the lies that we believe? Would we not rely on ourselves, but truly depend on you? God, we thank you uh, for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death, for his resurrection. And that by by him, we have a hope. So God, would we walk in that hope? Would we invite others into that hope this week? As we enter into a time of response, I want to invite our prayer team to come forward. And if you need prayer this morning for anything at all, uh, we want to invite you to come and be prayed over. Um, You don't have to even say anything. If you just want to come up, they'll know what to do. But we want to invite you to come, respond to what God has spoken this morning or God's doing in your life. Well, Father, we give you this time. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together. And as you feel led, please come up. We want to pray with you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch app to find community in the body of Christ.